0: Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, is in the midst of a section where he is discussing his apostolic credentials with the Corinthians. Paul was sort of the apostle who never got any respect. I shouldn't say never. Among some churches, he didn't get much respect. Among the Corinthians, there were a lot of people who were Paul's enemies, And they constantly criticized him and put him down as an apostle. And we're going to see how Paul dealt with this in chapter 11, verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. Now, Paul is not going to call the defense of his apostleship folly because it's stupid or nonsense. He calls it folly because he does it reluctantly. He knows that the time and effort could be far better spent on better things. He calls it folly because he knows that the things he believed to be honored about his apostleship would be regarded as foolish by some of the Corinthian Christians. Let me tell you, I believe that 2 Corinthians chapter 11 was a very reluctantly written chapter. Paul would not rather not be talking about himself and defending his apostleship. He doesn't want to do this. But it's important, and he'll discuss why it's important. He says, verse 1, And indeed you do bear with me. Well, Paul, if this is a little folly, why bother with it all? But it's worth it. And the reasons why, Paul's going to explain in verses 2 through 4. Check this out. He says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul begins this section saying that he's jealous for the Corinthians with a godly jealousy. You see, it's important that the Corinthian Christians understand and trust Paul's apostolic credentials, because Paul is jealous with a godly jealousy for their hearts. Paul's godly jealousy is a good thing. And his godly jealousy will be offended if the Corinthian Christians are seduced by a false understanding of what being an apostle is all about. You see, this was one of the big problems. The Corinthians had a worldly understanding of what it meant to be an apostle. And Paul didn't measure up to their expectations. So he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Now, human jealousy is a vice. It's a sin. But the Lord said, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Alan Redpath said, God's jealousy is love in action. He refuses to share the human heart with any rival, not because he's selfish and wants us all for himself, but because he knows that upon that loyalty to him depends our very moral life. God is not jealous of us. He is jealous for us. You see, sharing God's jealousy for his people is a virtue. And again, Paul isn't talking in a human context. He's not talking about human jealousy. No, he's talking about a godly jealousy. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. That's one reason why it's important. The second reason why, look at verse 2 again, he says, For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. In other words, it's important that the Corinthian Christians understand and trust Paul's apostolic credentials Because Paul is like the friend of the groom who watches out for the bride in between the period of the engagement and the wedding. I remember in an ancient world when somebody would get married, they'd get engaged, and the engagement was very binding. Matter of fact, to break an engagement in Paul's day, you had to get a divorce. An engagement was very binding. And so Paul says, I'm like the bridegroom, you've been engaged to Christ You haven't been married yet, that's going to happen on the day when you go see the Lord in heaven, and so it's my job to keep you pure and holy before the wedding day, so to speak, when you stand before Jesus. And so the friend of the bridegroom in that culture had a very important function, and the job of the the friend of the bridegroom wasn't taken lightly. Paul says, I've got a legitimate interest here in protecting you and preserving you, and so that's why I need to establish my apostolic credentials among you. And he goes on to say in verse 3: But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. Paul's third reason why it's important that the Corinthian Christians understand and trust Paul's apostolic credentials is because Paul knows the subtle nature of Satan's deceptions. In other words, why was it? In a spiritual, behind-the-scenes way, why was it that the Corinthian Christians were even having this conflict with Paul? It's because they were being deceived by Satan. See, at the bottom line, the Corinthian Christians didn't admire Paul's apostolic credentials because they were thinking in a worldly way, not having the mind of Jesus. Now, you and I might say to Paul, Paul came to us, you know, I've got a problem. Let Let me tell you my problem. Okay, Apostle Paul, tell me your problem. Those Corinthian Christians, they don't respect me as an apostle. There's all these other flashy, flim-flam guys, and they respect them as apostles. But they don't respect me as an apostle. You and I might be strongly tempted to say to Paul, look, Paul, just forget about it. You don't need their respect, right? Think about the Philippians. Think about the Ephesians. They love you, Paul. Don't worry about these guys. Just, Just forget about them. You know, it's not an important issue. Just let it roll off your back. Because a lot of times that's how we should deal with it when people are being critical of us, when people are being harsh towards us, when people have a bad opinion of us. Best thing to do, a lot of times just stop your ears and don't even listen to it and ignore it. So we ask Paul, why can't you just do this? Why are you spending so much time in God's word defending yourself? Get over your hurt feelings, Paul. Paul said, no, this isn't about my hurt feelings. I am not defending my apostolic credentials because I'm hurt. And I need, for my sake, to know that those Corinthian Christians respect me. That's not the reason. The reason why was because the lack of respect that the Corinthian Christians had towards Paul as an apostle was a symptom of a deep spiritual disease within the Corinthian Christians. And the deep spiritual disease was a deception from Satan. They weren't thinking like Jesus. They were thinking like the world. They didn't like Paul's apparent weakness, and unimpressive appearance. And this was an important point, because Paul's apparent weakness was shared by Jesus. You see, Paul was being shoved aside by the Corinthian Christians in favor of the kind of guys who wore big expensive suits and flashy jewelry and exuded power and charisma. And they'd come up on the platform, yeah, and power, and yeah, everything, yeah, I'm successful, I'm great. Listen to the way I speak. Look at the image I give. Yes, this is what Christianity's all about. Look at me. And Paul wasn't like that at all. So the cringers, ah, forget about Paul. He's a loser. Look at these other guys. Friends, this is the important point. Paul was like Jesus. The fancy pants guys were not. And so by loving those fancy, slick guys, their hearts were being drawn away from Jesus at the same time. Listen to what it says of Jesus in Philippians 2, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Friends, it was not only the apostolic credentials of Paul that were under attack, the very nature of Jesus was under attack. And this is the attack that Satan is trying to accomplish against the Corinthian Christians. So he's doing it the way he does so deceitfully. Did you see that in verse 3? As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Look, I'm going to give the devil some credit here tonight. He's good. You know, he's good at what he does you got it. You got to give the guy some respect for that. He's tricky. He's crafty. Satan's deception of Eve in the Garden of Eden is a good example of Satan's deceptive tactics. He lied to Eve, you shall not surely die. But that lie was surrounded by half-truths and enticing deception. The Corinthian Christians were challenged by the deception of this flash and image and triumphalism because it was wrapped in the truth of the triumphant life we can live in Jesus Christ. You see, shouldn't we live triumphant lives in Jesus? Shouldn't we be walking in victory? Shouldn't we be blessed by God? Yes, yes, yes. And then all of a sudden, shouldn't we have this appearance and image of power and success? And isn't that what it's all about with walking with God? No, that's the lie. Satan's very deceptive about how he brings about this thing, doesn't he? Here's a fourth reason. Verse 4. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you've not received, or a different gospel which you've not accepted, you may well put up with it. You see, it's important that the Corinthian Christians understand and trust Paul's apostolic credentials, because Paul knows that they are attracted to false apostles who preach another Jesus. Again, these fancy, slick guys that the Corinthians were falling in love with, they were preaching another Jesus. Now tell me the issue isn't serious. Now tell me that this is just sort of hurt feelings on Paul's behalf, and so he's trying to win back the allegiance of the Corinthian Christians so his feelings won't be so hurt. No! His concern is that they're going after another Jesus. The, the troublemakers among the Corinthian Christians who were stirring up the, the contention against Paul, they didn't only attack Paul. They were attacking the true Jesus by preaching another Jesus. Now, who was this other Jesus? Well, Because of the way the Corinthian Christians despised Paul's image of weakness, because of the way they despised his unimpressive appearance, The other Jesus was probably a Jesus who knew no weakness, no persecution, no humiliation, no suffering, no death. He was some kind of super Jesus. And this is another Jesus, not the real Jesus. And another Jesus cannot save your soul. Only the real Jesus can. Now let me tell you in all directness, there are people today preaching... The same other Jesus that was being preached by the false teachers in Corinth. When you hear those guys get up and try to tell you how Jesus was a rich man and how he had all this worldly goods and power and authority, and how if you'd only trust God and give to their ministry, then you'd be rich too. Turn off the television. It's false doctrine, it's teaching another Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's another Jesus. That Jesus cannot save your soul. Because he's not the Jesus of the Bible. I don't know how any more directly to put it. But it's out there. So, Paul made it plain, this is serious business. These fellows are preaching another Jesus. They have another spirit. A a different gospel. And it will not be accepted. Did you notice this in verse 4? Where he says, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus. I think this is interesting. Paul is saying there's out there these guys who he calls he who comes. Now, do you know what it means to be an apostle? An apostle is somebody who's sent. That's what it means to be an apostle. Someone who is sent with authority. These troublemakers were the exact opposite of of apostles. One could say of them, he who comes. Of an apostle, one would say, One who is sent. These false apostles simply came. They weren't really sent by God. They just came of their own accord. And look at the real problem at the end of verse 4. He says, you may well put up with it. It wasn't so much that there were false teachers that had come among the Christians in Corinth. The problem was that the Corinthian Christians were putting up with them. That's the problem. Listen, the church has the same problem today. It is no surprise that there are false teachers in the church today. There's no surprise that there's the fancy, slick, smooth-talking, Mr. and Mrs. image of success and power and all outward appearance and all this. There's no surprise that there's people like that in the church today. They've always been in the church. They've been in the church since Paul's day. The problem is that the church puts up with them and embraces them and fills stadiums for them and buys their books like crazy and gives them nationwide television programs. Christians of this generation, like Christians of many generations, will have to answer to Jesus for their lack of discernment when it comes to the false teachers and leaders accepted and embraced by the church today. That's what he said. You may well put up with it. The Corinthians were putting up with it. So are we today, sadly, foolishly. So Paul's going to go on here now, verse 5, and talk about his foolish humility. He says, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Please, remember that phrase, the most eminent apostles. Let me read on, though. I'll read the whole section. Then we'll go back and take a look at it piece by piece. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly made manifest to you among you in all things. Did I commit sin in abasing myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what was lacking to me, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. Paul begins this little section, verse 5. Now, the sarcasm doesn't bite much deeper in the whole Bible than it does in verse 5. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Well, who's he talking about? Fancy, pan, slick guys. <laughs> oh, these most eminent apostles. He's comparing himself to these people. No, he's sarcastically referring to the false apostles who claim to be superior to Paul. And might I say, I tread a little lightly here because it's one of those don't get me started kind of things. <laughs> but Did you know, there are people today who claim to be superior to the Apostle Paul. They look at the hardships that Paul's going to talk about in this very chapter. And they say, well, if that brother was walking in faith like I walk in faith, he wouldn't have had all those hardships. And I can just say, people who teach that should get down on their knees and thank God that they do not live in an age when heretics are burnt at the stake. As anybody who would go around claiming to be superior to the Apostle Paul deserves the kind of sarcastic dismissal that Paul delivers in verse 5, where he simply says, I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. You see, whoever these most eminent apostles are, Paul says, oh, I'm not inferior to them. And Paul's going to explain how he's greater than them. Now hold on to your hats. Wait till you hear Paul's explanation on how he's greater than the most eminent apostles. Oh, he'll get on to it. By the way, the, the phrase in the original language, most eminent apostles, you know what it really literally is? It's like saying extra super apostles. Paul's writing in sarcastic reference. He's saying, well, you know, I don't think I'm all that inferior to these super duper apostles. These guys who promote themselves that way, and Paul says, "Oh yeah, let me explain to you. Just give me a few minutes. I will explain to you how I compare to the most eminent apostles." But he goes on. He says, "Verse six. There, even though I am untrained in speech." Now you say, "Wait a minute. Wait. A minute. No. 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 I've read Paul's letters. I, I've. I've read the book of Acts. I've heard Paul was a very good speaker." Well, yes and no. He was a very effective preacher of the gospel, no doubt about that. But according to the standards of Greek rhetoric, Paul was untrained in speech. You see, in Paul's day, the ability to speak in a polished, sophisticated, entertaining way was very popular. And others, such as the super-duper apostles, those guys that the Corinthian Christians loved so much, They were able to speak in this manner. But Paul was either unable or unwilling to preach this way. It didn't matter to Paul, because he wasn't concerned with meeting people's standards for a Paulist or entertaining speaker. He was simply concerned with faithfully preaching the gospel. I heard a story once about a dinner party where the guests were expected after the meal to stand up and recite something for the group. So a very famous actor was present at this dinner party And he got up and he recited the 23rd Psalm with great dramatic flair and emotion. The Lord is my shepherd. You know, and he did it all in a big theatrical way. And when he was finished, he sat down and, oh, everybody did Oh, they applauded them. What a fine, fine rendition. Then right after him, a very simple man got up and began to recite the same Psalm. He wasn't very eloquent. And so at first, people kind of giggled a little bit. They thought it was a little funny. You know, he wasn't a trained actor like the guy who just went. Then they saw how what he said was straight from his heart. And when he sat down, nobody clapped, nobody said anything. They just sat in respectful silence. It was obvious that the second man, the simple man's presentation, was far more powerful than the first. You know what the actor told him afterwards? the actor came up to him and he said, I know the song, but you know the shepherd. And that was the difference. Well, Paul wasn't some actor who could get up there and deliver the polished oratory and speak according to all the entertaining way that they liked to hear in the ancient world. But no, that was the difference between the preaching of Paul and the preaching of the most eminent apostles. He didn't have all the polish and the panache, but he knew God. And he preached the gospel with power. He says, you guys knew me. He says that there in verse 6. I've been thoroughly made manifest to you among you in all things. You could see my life through and through. Now those fancy pants image guys, they weren't like that. Yeah, they had a great platform presence, but off the platform they weren't the same kind of people. And then Paul goes on in verse 7. He said, did I commit sin and humbling myself because I preached the gospel to you free of charge? Now again, let me help you understand something here. In the culture of that day, if a public speaker didn't take money for his speaking, he was often disregarded as a poor speaker with worthless teaching. It's kind of like the difference between the, the musician who goes out in the professional world and the guy who can play for money and the guy who plays for nothing. Well, you know, people, well, the guy who plays for nothing, he's trying, but it really, he really can't be all that good, right, because he plays for nothing. That's what a lot of people think. Of course, it's not true, is it? But a lot of people think that way. Well, it was especially true in Paul's day. Well, you got this guy going around, preaching his sermon, speaking for free? Well, he can't be very good. He can't be very very sophisticated. Many people thought of someone who charged no speaking fee as strictly an amateur. Paul says, no, I don't care about the opinions of other people. My heart for preaching the gospel without charge is there, and that's what I'm going to do. And if you want to see ironic, look at verse 7 again. Did I commit sin? I'll say, what, was it a sin for me to preach the gospel for free? Not at all. Matter of fact, he goes on in verses 8 and 9, and he says, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. You know, when Paul was in Corinth, other churches would send money to support him. The Corinthians wouldn't support him, and Paul wouldn't ask. And so the Corinthians should have been supporting Paul. After all, he was ministering to them spiritually. It was only right that they'd be supporting him materially. But no, Paul wouldn't take it. He said, look, I don't want to cause any offense here. Other churches from other cities came and they supported Paul while he was in Corinth. Paul says, it's like I was robbing other churches. Then he goes on, verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Why? Because I do not love you, God knows, but what I do I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, and no wonder... For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Wow. Paul's really taken off the gloves in these verses. He says, Listen, I'm going to boast that I didn't take any money. You guys might think it's shameful. You might think it's an embarrassment to me. Paul says, no, I'm going to boast in this. Nobody's going to stop me. Why? Because I do not love you? He says, no, God knows. Paul's boasting in his weakness and unimpressive image was an embarrassment to the Corinthian Christians. And they're like, Paul, why are you embarrassing us this way? Why do you go on about your humbleness and your weakness and how you don't take any money for this? Why can't you be a little bit more like the flashy guys? You're embarrassing us, Paul. Paul says, no, I don't care if I'm embarrassing you. It's only because I love you. and I'm going to find a way to bring you back from your worldly thinking. Matter of fact, he says, and this is a powerful verse in verse 12, he says, I will continue to do so that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are. What Paul's saying is, I want to expose these most eminent apostles, as frauds. If it takes sarcasm, if it takes embarrassing the Corinthian Christians to expose them, I'm going to do it. But they want to be regarded just as we are, as apostles. Paul says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to expose these guys instead. And look at, that's what exactly what he does there in verse 13. Are the gloves off or what? For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Here, no more sarcasm. Now it's just direct. You want to know what these guys are? I'm not calling them super-duper apostles anymore. That was me speaking ironically, sarcastically. Now you want to know what they are? Paul says they're false apostles. They're deceitful workers. They transform themselves into apostles of Christ. Few modern Christians want to deal with the fact that there are still false apostles and deceitful workers among Christians. We live in the age where we want to blur all the distinctions and just pretty much say, look, can't we all get along? Why do we have to be so doctrinal? Doctrines just divide, don't they? Why can't we just, you know, look, it just doesn't matter. We all love Jesus, don't we? Well, no. We don't, because there are false apostles. There are deceitful workers. They were clearly there in Paul's day, and they remain to this day. And false apostles are those who are, did you notice this in verse 13, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. In point of fact, no one can transform themselves into a true apostle of Christ. What, are you going to make yourself an apostle? There was a movie put out not too long ago called The Apostle. And that's what this fellow did. You might say he was a sincere man of God. You might not. But that's what he decided he'd do. He'd try and make himself an apostle. And I tell you, you can't do that. You can't transform yourself into a true apostle. No, they, they never were true apostles. It's only a calling from God. And when you decide to try to transform yourself into an apostle, well, let's talk about who does that kind of transformation. Did you see verse 14? And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. These guys transform, Satan transforms. Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Even as Satan may appear as an angel of light, so false apostles may have a good appearance. Paul is showing the Corinthian Christians how foolish it is to rely on image and outward appearance. It is so easy for all people, including Christians to be taken in by image and outward appearance. There are many people today in the church who will only recognize evil if it openly declares itself as evil. Pretty much somebody has to walk in through the door and wear a name badge that says, hello, I'm a false prophet. Hello, I'm a deceptive teacher. Hi, nice to meet you. That's about the only way anybody would recognize them. If they don't openly declare themselves to be that, then nobody wants to say, well, you know, they, they say they're just trying to do what's right. I guess they must be. No! Many, many who take this approach wind up embracing Satan himself, who transforms himself into an angel of light. My friends, if Satan were to appear before this human audience tonight we would be strongly tempted to worship him as a creature of almost divine beauty. He would be regarded as an angel of light. You know, that picture of Satan that we have from the comic books or from the, the horror movies, you know, this grotesque, panting, evil, eyes, you know, just, ah, oh, it looks terrible, oh, Frightening. Not at all how Satan promotes himself. Even so, it's foolish for the Corinthian Christians or we today to be taken in by outward appearances and image. People do it all the time today, though. So what's the judgment reserved for these people who transform themselves into apostles? Notice. Verse 15, therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. Is there a single person in this room who wants that for them? Do you want your end before God to be according to your works? Not me. I want my end to be according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. verse 16. I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least perceive me as a fool, that I may also boast a little. Paul's getting a little playful, a little sarcastic here again. It's like he put his pen down at verse 15, took a little walk, whew, few great breaths, and he goes, okay, all right, all right. I got a little worked up there. I know. Let me take this back from another way. It's easy to sense both Paul's sarcasm and his hesitancy to promote himself. You know, Paul feels one way talking about these other people, and now he's going to talk about himself. Can I just tell you, Paul would rather not talk about himself. He doesn't feel that he's a fit subject for a sermon. He wants to talk about Jesus. But that message of Jesus is hindered by the Corinthians' disregard of Paul's credentials as a true apostle, as a true representative of Jesus. So Paul says, let no one think of me as a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I may also boast little. Now, the underlying thing is he goes, you Corinthians receive a lot of fools. What's one more? Just receive me as a fool. (laughs) But Paul's not like the real fools who boast of their credentials. And we're going to see why once he gets to his credentials. It says in verse 17, Would I speak? I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly, in the confidence of boasting. Now when Paul says, I don't say this, I'm not speaking according to the Lord, he's not trying to say, well, I'm off inspiration here. That's not the point at all. He means it in the sense that the defense of his credentials focuses on himself. Paul doesn't like to talk about himself. He was happy to write before in this letter, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. But he feels forced into writing about himself. He says, seeing that, if you notice here, verse 18, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, well, I will also boast. You know, the, what a, let me just lay it down here for you. The, these super-duper apostles were coming among the Corinthians, seducing them, deceiving them, and they loved to get up there and talk about themselves. Well, brother, let me tell you about my mighty victory of faith. And, you know, and all the miracles I did. And all the people I healed. And, oh, what a great man of faith and power. And let me tell you the stories. And here they were puffing themselves up. And the foolish Corinthians, oh, my spiritual hero. Oh, God's men of faith and power for this generation. Oh, just listen to them. And there they all taken in by it. And there they are just talking about themselves, promoting themselves, puffing themselves up. You know, they'd love to tell these stories, and they'd be the hero of every story. So Paul says, well, these guys are doing it. I'll do it too. But I'm not going to do it the same way, Paul said. You just wait till I talk about myself, until I tell you my qualifications. Verse 18, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. But his boasting is not going to be like those who boast according to the flesh. <laughs> Again, he gets into it, verse 19, I mean... I think that I just would want to see the flush of embarrassment on the faces of the Corinthians as they read this letter for the first time. The sarcasm is just so thick. Verse 19 For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. You guys are so wise, you put up with all these clowns. You must be outthinking them, you must be outsmarting them. I mean, and he says, if you guys are wise enough to put up with so many fools, well, surely you can listen to me for a while. But notice here, verse 20, I think Paul switches gears very quickly, touching on a very serious matter. You know, he's doing this interplay where he'll sort of build things up with sarcasm, and then he'll drive the sword in. Verse 20 is the sword. Look at this. He says, for you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you. If one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face, to our shame, I say we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. See what he says there in verse 20? You put up with it if someone brings you into bondage. Friends, I don't know if what I'm trying to communicate to you tonight is coming through. Maybe it isn't because... Maybe you've never really come in contact with people like this. With these kind of super apostle type people that Paul is trying to expose to the Corinthians. But if you ever have, if you've been, have been around these people who sort of rule, not by the power and the love and the grace of God, but they rule by the force of their own personality and their own allegiance and their own you know, charisma and their own flash and successful image and appearance. If you've ever been around those people, you know how they bring others into bondage. They do. You see, like many of the deceived today, the Corinthians would somehow put up with abuse from the super apostles, somehow thinking that it's spiritual. You see, these these false apostles were... We're having a personal domination and authority over others. The the emphasis on image and outward appearance is often coupled with an authoritarian approach to leadership. And this probably explains the bondage that Paul's referring to. There's so many examples from, you know, a little bit over the line to way, way extreme. But if you want an example of someone way, way in the extreme. Think of a guy like David Koresh. Here was a man who ruled over other people by the force of his personality and his charisma and and what he could do over them to the point where he would freely take other men's wives and daughters and do with them as he pleased. And people would willingly give them up to him. They thought, well, we're pleasing the, the leader. We're pleasing. Sure. That's bondage, that's spiritual abuse. In this environment, perhaps not to that great degree, but to a degree somewhere along that continuum, practiced in many churches today. You see, the Corinthian Christians were so taken with their super apostles, that they would accept all kinds of ill treatment from them. He says, if one devours you, you'll take it. If one takes from you, you'll give it to him. If one exalts himself, you'll endure it. If one strikes you on the face, well, you'll just receive it. They were so impressed with the image of authority and the power of the super apostles, they meekly submitted to this kind of treatment. And you say, well, what? You mean they would even accept it if if someone would strike them on the face? Yes. Did you know in that day it wasn't uncommon for religious authorities outside of Jesus' true ministers to command people that they be struck in the face for a punishment. And this kind of thing is probably going along around the Corinthians. Or probably they bring somebody up in front of the congregation, you know, his discipline, and the, the Mr. Super-Duper Apostle would, would, you know, strike them in the face publicly and say, well, you know, now they won't sin that way again, and humiliate them in front of the whole church. And people go, oh, and somehow they, they'd respect her, or they'd love, or they'd be devoted to the man even more, admiring his power and sway over other people. And it's sad today that some people are more comfortable with the authoritarian super-apostle type than they are with the freedom that they have in Jesus. That's a hard one to figure out, but it's true. I've seen it up close with my own eyes. Some people, the shackles of bondage just feel comfortable for some reason. And the freedom you can have in Jesus where it's you and Jesus and you have your own relationship with him and, and, and you know, you don't have, you're not bound to the pastor, you're not bound to the super apostle. That seems so scary to some people, but it shouldn't. It shouldn't. That's what the Lord God has for you. You see what Paul says in verse 21, shifting gears back to the sarcastic? Uh, Let me read verse 20 and then 21 again. He says, for you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame I say that we were too weak for that. (laughs) Paul says, you despise me as a weak man. You're right, I'm too weak to abuse you guys. Guilty as charged. Lock me up, throw away the key. I don't abuse the sheep the way that the super apostles do. No, but in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. You see, the most eminent apostles were bold in proclaiming their greatness. So Paul says, I'll be bold also, but I'm going to speak foolishly. Friends, from here to the end of the chapter, verse 22 to verse 33. This contains Paul's foolish boasting about the things that prove him a true apostle. Think of it as a debate. Here we are, the church at Corinth. And coming up first is one of the super apostles. Super duper apostles. And they come up and they say, let me tell you why I'm such a great apostle. Why this person I healed, and this man I saved, and this sermon I preached, and these people I touched, And this miracle God did through my hands. And he's got the nice suit on. He's got the winning smile. He's got all the great stories. He's got the great speaking skills. Everything about him exudes power and success and domination. And the Corinthians are just like, oh, my hero. Oh, this guy's so great. What a wonderful, wonderful leader. And then he sits down. Okay, my turn now. I'll boast a little bit. Paul stands up at the platform. He's short. He's kind of hunched over. His eyes squint because they aren't that good. He doesn't have eyebrows, he has one eyebrow that stretches all the way across his face. He's really bald, and what hair he does have is gray. He's got a big nose. He says, all right, my turn to boast. Let me tell you. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they of the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, more above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. In weariness, and toil, and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Well, who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the the, the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to apprehend me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. That's what makes me such a great apostle. (laughs) That's what he's getting at, my friends. Begins by saying, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Paul's human ancestry was more than enough to qualify him as an apostle. Now, Paul knows very well that his blood ancestry does not make him an apostle or servant of Jesus. But you see, many of those most eminent apostles implied, either specifically or just by implication, that it was important. Knowing the silliness of this, Paul prefaces his remarks by saying, I speak foolishly. I mean, I'm speaking foolishly here. Of course, I know being a Hebrew, Israelite doesn't have anything to do with being sent from God. But now in verse 23, he gets down to business. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. You see, the super-duper apostles, the most eminent apostles, claim to be ministers of Christ. Now, when they used the term, it probably sounded like an honored, privileged title. As for Paul, he will claim to be among the ministers of Christ, but he will explain he means something far different than the most eminent apostles meant. You see, they said, we're ministers. Hi, I'm a minister. Now, it's funny, you know, sometimes I'm introduced that way. And some people regard that as sort of, you know, like a title of honor. Well, here's the minister. You know know what it means? Here's the servant. Here's the butler. Here's the waiter, a table waiter. That's what minister means. It's not an honored title at all. It comes from the Greek word diakonos, which describes a humble servant, a menial worker. The most eminent apostles had inflated the idea of minister to make it a title of exaltation and privilege. I'm a minister of Christ. Paul says, Look, I don't have any problem with the title minister. But I got a big problem with the understanding of the title promoted by these super duper apostles and received by the Corinthian Christians. So Paul says, "Let me tell you what qualifies me to be a minister of Christ, and you should expect that it's going to be rather different than what the most eminent apostles thought qualified people to be ministers of Christ." You want to know what my qualifications are? Here's my resume. Paul says, verse twenty-three, um. In labors more abundant. In other words, I am a minister of Christ because I work harder than any of the other apostles for Jesus' sake. He worked harder. Now, in contrast, the most eminent apostles saw being a minister of Christ a matter of privilege. Well, don't make him do too much, he's a minister. Well, you know. I shouldn't need to do this, you do it, I'm a minister. That's the way they thought of it. You see, they thought that the more of a minister you were, the less you should have to work, and the more other people should serve you. Paul says, no, I'm a minister of Christ, because I work harder than any of them. Okay, verse 23, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure. You might think, well, he's talking about military. You know, you got stripes for rank. I've got more stripes than anyone. No, you know what stripes he's talking about. The whip marks on your back. Paul says, I am a minister of Christ because I've been beaten many times for Jesus' sake. And Paul received beatings from both the Jews. He says, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. And he received beatings from the Romans. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. That's what the Romans would beat you with. It's interesting how he talks about being beat 40 stripes minus 1. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says you can't beat somebody more than 40 times. And so when the Jews are administering, they'd they'd say, well, we might miscount, we don't want to break the law, so we'll just give the guy 39, not 40. And so they talk about in the Mishnah how they would beat somebody with 40 stripes. They would tie the two hands of a criminal to a post And then the servant of the synagogue would either tear off his clothes or or pull them down until the the man's whole body was bare from the waist up. And then they would place a stone or a block behind him and the person whipping would stand on that to get some good leverage over them. And then they would get a scourge made of leather divided in four straps. And then they would do 39 lashes in three sets of 13. The first 13 would go across the criminal's breast, right on their chest. The second 13 would go on the right shoulder. The third 13 would go on the left shoulder. And then they would do it all. And the man was instructed to beat him with all the strength that he had. Paul says, I received that five times. Not to mention being beaten by rods. That's what the Romans would do. Just get a stick and start wailing on you. No, that's why I'm a minister of Christ. Is that enough? Oh, you need more? Verse 23, in prisons more frequently. I'm a minister of Christ because I've spent a lot of time in prison for Jesus' sake. Paul speaks of being in prison several times. Now what's interesting about this is the book of Acts only tells us of one instance of Paul being in prison up to this date, which means, let's remember, Acts is an incomplete book. A lot more went on that's not recorded in the book of Acts. Paul was in prison a lot of times. And then he says, uh, in deaths often, in verse 23. I'm a minister of Christ because I've been close to death many times for Jesus' sake. And we know Paul was close to death when an angry crowd tried to execute him by stoning in Lystra, but there were many other times as well. That refers in verse 23 when he says, once I was stoned. He doesn't mean that in the hippie sense, my friends. He's not talking about his testimony here. He's talking about one time he laid under a pile of rocks that were forcibly thrown on him by the people. He goes on. He says, "Verse twenty-five. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've been in the deep, and journeys often in perils. I'm a minister of Christ because I traveled many miles for Jesus' sake, and I've endured many hardships in traveling for Jesus' sake. You know, in the modern world, a a busy travel schedule can be hard on anybody." But think of what it was like in the ancient world. Now, Through the book of Acts, we read of no less than 18 journeys Paul took by ship, and half of them come before the point when 2 Corinthians was written. And since the book of Acts is an incomplete record, there were many more in addition to this. Some ancient historians have said that there is no other man in the ancient world who is recorded to have traveled as extensively as the apostle Paul did. He goes on, this is where it gets really good, verse 26 In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. You heard the perils of Pauline. Well, here's the perils of Paul. Paul says, I'm a minister of Christ because I've endured many perils and many discomforts for Jesus' sake. That's what makes me a minister I simply say that all of these perils simply add up to a hard, stress-filled life. It says, in perils of waters. This refers to the great dangers Paul faced in crossing rivers as he traveled. In perils of robbers. One of the worst dangers of travel in the ancient world were the muggers ready to rob isolated travelers in the middle of nowhere. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? That's what that one's all about. In perils in the city. A lot of times, if Paul would go to a city, he wouldn't leave until there was a hostile mob driving him out of the city. And perils in the wilderness. In his travels, Paul spent many dangerous nights in the wilderness. You know what it's like? You're out in the middle of nowhere, you start hearing those animals howl at night. Paul lived through a lot of that. And perils in the sea. This refers to Paul's many shipwrecks and difficulties when traveling by sea. And perils among false brethren. Paul had the dangers of those who said they were his brothers and friends and were not. in weariness, and toil, in sleeplessness, often, in hunger and thirst, and fastings, often in cold and nakedness. Do you realize that in our modern world, we're isolated from so many of the difficulties that Paul would have faced? I remember a few weeks ago when he had a real cold snap around here. "Oh, wow, it was cold. Oh, we were chilled to the bone. Get me in my car and turn on the heater." And then we run from the car. Oh, it's so cold outside. Into the house. Get me under my electric blanket. Oh, that's much better. (laughs) Paul didn't have an electric blanket. You know, a lot of times when he was cold, it was raining and it was wet, too. And he couldn't get warm. He was chilled to the bone. We can get water and food and warmth so much more easily than Paul ever could. Paul simply lived a hard life as a missionary, traveling and preaching the gospel. Now, let's make it clear. It wasn't the mere fact of a hard life that made Paul a true minister of Jesus Christ. Many people have had hard lives, but are in no way servants of Jesus. But for Paul... All of these perils, all of these hardships were freely chosen when he could have lived differently if he wanted to. He didn't want to. He wanted to serve Jesus. And if these hardships were part of serving Jesus, he would accept them. As you read this, Steve, just read this and it just floods your mind. How could the man who lived this life possibly be happy? You've got to be kidding me, Paul. This is your life? You know how he could be happy? Because Paul had died to himself. Because he could say, I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because of this, Paul could also practice what he preached. In Romans 5.3, he said, We also glory in tribulations. And you know what? He lived it. This wasn't some guy who lived a yellow brick road kind of life. It was tough. This wasn't just spiritual talk from Paul. He really lived it. He could really say and really mean what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for our light affliction. Paul lived this kind of life, and he says, our light affliction? our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. Don't you feel like a big fat baby right now? (laughs) I sure do. What do I have to complain about? This was Paul's life, and he could say, our light affliction. I'll say, I glory in these things. You see, the most eminent apostles, those super-duper apostles, and the Corinthian Christians who bought into their worldly lies, they must have thought Paul was crazy at this point. They found nothing to boast about in these hardships Paul glories in. For them, these kind of hardships said, God isn't with me. I'm a loser. I'm weak. I'm not happy. My life's too hard. What, shipwrecked again? Beat me with stripes again? another mob in another city, another cold night out in the wilderness. I'm such a loser. God must not like me. I quit. I give up. You know why? Because they could only glory in the image of power and in the appearance of success. If they didn't have that, they felt like God was against them. They thought this way because their thinking was worldly instead of having the mind of Alan Redpath said, Such is the price that Paul paid. How does that react upon you? Do you congratulate yourself that you've escaped it? One week of such living and we would be done. But Paul went through it for a lifetime and gloried in his infirmities. I don't even know if we've talked about the worst of it. Did you see it there in verse 28? Besides the other things... What comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. You see, in addition to all the stressful perils that Paul mentioned before, Paul lived daily with another burden. He lived with a deep concern for all the churches. The the perils that Paul mentioned were not everyday occurrences. He wasn't getting shipwrecked every day. He wasn't getting beaten every day. But his deep concern for all the churches never left him. Paul's burdens were not only physical, they were also emotional. And he says here in verse 29, Who's weak and I'm not made weak? Who's made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? His deep concern was not for himself. Paul wasn't going around saying, I'm so shipwrecked, I'm so beaten, I'm so rejected by the... No! No! His concern was for others. That brother's weak. I'm hurting for them. Well, somebody made them stumble. Can't somebody do something about that? Paul's deep concern was not for himself. It was for others, for the weak, for those made to stumble. Paul had many burdens, but none of them were for himself. He, like Jesus, was a truly others-centered person. So he says... Verse 35, I must boast. I'll boast in the things which concern my infirmity. What are my credentials? Paul takes the shirt off his back and he shows a scarred back from the whippings and the beatings. He goes, here's my resume. My infirmities. My beatings. My weakness. The life of hardship and stress that I've lived as a whole. Now the false apostles, the most eminent apostles, the super-duper apostles, would never dream of boasting in such things. They thought any kind of infirmity made someone look weak and far from God. Paul didn't care if he looked foolish in the eyes of the world or if those in the eyes of those in the church who thought like the world. Paul lived with an eternal perspective, not a worldly one. So he says. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Why does he throw that in there? You know what I think? I think because the the Corinthians would be just so blown away at this time. Saying, nuh-uh, Paul. Nuh-uh, you're not glorying in this stuff. You don't really think that these things are your apostolic credentials. Come on, you you really want to be like the super-duper apostles, don't you, Paul? You want to put on that two thousand dollar suit and wear that gold bracelet thick enough to choke a horse. And you want to get your hair done just right and prance around the platform like like someone who, who receives the applause and gets admired. That's what you want. Really, Paul, isn't that what you want? Before God. He knows I'm not lying. So he says, and look how he finishes. It's almost funny to me how he finishes this. I bet Paul was almost like he had to break the ice. or He had to break it up a little bit. So at the end he goes, and let me tell you this, in Damascus, the governor under Ariatus, the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to apprehend me, uh, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know what this was? This was probably the one of the first real perils or hardships that Paul faced for Jesus' sake. When there was an assassination attempt, there was a, a threat out on his life. He was, you know, a hit called in on him in Damascus, not very long after his conversion. And this was like his apprenticeship in persecution. It's as if he's saying, This is how my ministry began, and this is how it continues. <laughs> Uh, it illustrates with power the contrast between Saul of Tarsus. Listen, Paul says, I'm a different man. You know, way back before this Damascus thing, when Paul was approaching the city of Damascus, there was Paul. He was one of these image power guys. There he is, marching into Damascus, looking to get some Christians and whoop them. Because he's fighting for God, and everybody fears him. And yeah, I'm Saul of Tarsus. Better listen to me. He was one of these guys. God met him on the road to Damascus and changed him totally. So he goes from Saul of Tarsus, the kind of guy who had the thinking of a super-duper apostle. He goes from that to being let down in a basket to escape persecution. Is there anything more descriptive of weakness than escaping by being let down in a basket over a wall? G. Campbell Morgan said, could we think of anything more likely to rob a man of any sense of dignity than that? <laughs> and Paul's saying, look, this is how I began in ministry. And this is how it continues. I feel that I haven't done justice to the greatness of this text tonight. Because this is something so important for every one of our lives. Every one of us has a measuring stick that we measure ourselves and others by. Sometimes we use a different measuring stick for ourselves than for others. But do you see that the Corinthians were using a worldly measuring stick and that's why they could admire the super-duper apostles and despise Paul. And that's been Paul's whole struggle. He's saying, Get rid of the worldly measuring stick. Take on the mind of Christ. Let that be your God. Now, you measure others and you measure yourself. What's your measuring stick? Father, give us the mind of Christ. Give us the mind that was in Paul, Lord. Because he had the mind of Christ. That's all he's talking about here. The mind that could glory in these tribulations and, and not be concerned with the image of success and the appearance of power. Father, that mind is the mind of Philippians 2. The mind of Christ. Father, build that in us When we measure ourselves or when we measure others, and especially, Lord, as we measure leaders in our life before you, help us to use the right measuring stick, Lord. Glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.